Hey, True North, welcome to the fourth episode of our study through the letters of John. My name is Eugene. I'm a member of our pastoral staff here at True North. Thanks for listening in. So what we're going to do today is finish up chapter two uh, of 1 John. So as usual, if you hopefully have a Bible in front of you, and even if you don't, maybe pull up just your Bible app. And I know it's a temptation just to want to listen to this and get something out of it, but I would really hope and ask of you, if you are listening, just to take some time. Uh, if you could read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to verse 29, we're going to go over all that. So take a moment, wherever you're at, maybe, maybe a little bit of a silent prayer before, read that, jot down anything that comes to mind, any questions you have, and then I'll see you on the other side. Well, welcome back. Hope that was uh, a good time of reading God's Word. So I'm going to do this in two sections for us today. I want to focus first on the first three verses where John talks about the love of the world. And then at the end, we'll get into what John is talking about when he mentions Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? Is he here? We'll get into all of that. But first, I'm going to read verses 15 to 17 in the ESV. So this is what John writes in chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let me break down a couple of Just observations that might be kind of hard to see uh, if you are reading this. But I mean, very clearly, John is warning the church uh, not to love the world. And I guess to take a big step back, I know this could sound like, oh, the culture, the world, quote unquote, the anything out there outside of the church is evil. And we have to separate ourselves from them. So I want to parse that out. There is truth to that. But in other parts of scripture, it's very clear that Everything in this world is from the Father, which means that this doesn't mean we have to, and, and we talk about this a lot, North, but this doesn't mean that we can only watch VeggieTales, that uh, we can only listen to Hillsong, and only read Christian books, because let's be honest, some of the production is just horrible, uh, but that's another discussion for another time. That's not what John is getting at. Uh, he One thing that's very, if you look closely at the text, in verse 16, he warns, for all that is in the world, and he clarifies, and he doesn't say anything that non-Christians do. He lists out three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. We'll get into that, uh, all these three things individually, but I think what John is getting at is that oftentimes the world can be corrupted by fallen people. And oftentimes what sin is, it's not a bad desire, but it's the wrong object of desire. So for example, we always use the example of sex. Oftentimes, most people outside or maybe even in the church think that God is, hey, don't have sex in any form and that it's dirty and you can only have it to have babies and in marriage. That's not at all the design of sex. Uh, In various places throughout scripture, God honors the the act of sex, that it's a very sacred thing that he's made for his people. 
but in the right parameters. The desire itself that every human being has, that sexual desire is not bad, but what matters is the object you put that desire into. So to get practical, how is it that John warns us to have the right objects of desire? Well, he talks about three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And I think this is a really helpful way to view sin or idolatry, that it's a misordering of loves or misordering of desires. Some commentators think John is hearkening back to Genesis when Eden, sorry, in Eden, when, when Eve eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she's tempted and it's from a desire, right? She sees the fruit, she wants to know what it tastes like, she sees it in her eyes and there's a pride that even though, hey, God told us not to do this, I'm going to go to Adam and we're going to decide this is best for us. Maybe it, Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I think practically, these three observations are really helpful for even now. Desires of the flesh, what is John mentioning there? It's it's a misordering of human nature. So what that is kind of getting at is that it refers to anything that appeals to your broken, broken heart of desire. So for example, I talked about sex, but let's even talk about gluttony. Gluttony is a sin. Um, eating is not a problem. It's not a sin. That's very clear throughout Scripture that God has designed us to enjoy food. And even in Revelation, it mentions in heaven there will be a feast of a multitude of different plates of different cultures. But the desire of man's fallen nature or the desires of flesh is when it leads into gluttony, when we've crossed a certain line. Same thing with sex. So what John's getting at here is often, and you can maybe audit your own life, uh, there's always a way that your own heart kind of dilutes or pollutes the God-ordained desire that you're given. And this happens anywhere, in your workplace, in your family, in your marriage, in your friendships, uh, in, in your browsing history. And, and, and I hope it's helpful to understand that John's mentioning, look, the desires that you have, oftentimes the core desire is not bad. But it's when the flesh comes in and messes it up. Because I often think, you know, Christianity is not the killing of desire. And, and I often wonder if a lot of people think that way. That to live a Christian life is to, put it bluntly, to live a boring life. And it's not at all. It's understanding how your heart works. How it's, you know, the, the, the broken part of your heart, the flesh, can misorder or pollute your desires. So that first part, I hope that's clear. Desires of the flesh, you have to watch out for that. Second, uh, he talks about desires of the eyes. What is John getting at there? You know, two sermons ago, Jesus, uh, we, we talked about Jesus healing the man born blind and how it's a, a deeper metaphor for not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. Because so often your heart, not only does it want things in, in broken ways, but it also looks at things in broken lenses as well. Our, our, our souls are always looking for something to, to envy at or to, to be jealous about. And I think what John's getting at here is you have to be aware that so often how your soul views the world can be broken. So, for example, when we talk about envy, if you see your friend get a raise or a, a new job or whatever it may be, and if the first feeling you have is of envy or jealousy, 
then there's something broken in your sight, right? That you're not able to see the celebration and the joy, but it always goes back to you and how it relates only to you. Again, this can be done, as we just mentioned before, uh, about anything in your life, how, how you see your spouse, how you see your friends. So what John's getting is, are you able to see things with, with the clarity, with, with the actual reality of what's happening? Are you able to see something and find joy in something that might threaten you, right? So for example, going back to if your coworker does get a raise, and maybe you know it's someone that you feel like, oh wait, I'm doing the same level. Even in the midst of that, are you able to still celebrate that? Are you seeing that situation clearly with the reality God wants you to see it with? So desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and lastly, the pride of life. I think what John is getting at here is he's referring to anything that brings unwarranted attention to your own life. And, you know, we can do this in sneaky ways. Like, it's not explicit often where we're just screaming, hey, look at my net worth or look at whatever it is. But when we make our own accomplishments or our decisions only and solely to impress others so that we can have praise or worship or esteem from others, what you're desiring is the approval of man um, more than the approval of God. Because if you see yourself through God's lens, there's really nothing you can be prideful for. The, the only thing you can be is thankful. And oftentimes I think pride is the greatest hindrance to thankfulness or to even a content life. Because you hold so tightly to things that you have, you're not able to be thankful and, and just enjoy the things you have because you're scared of losing them. So I know that might sound a little jumble, but I hope that's helpful. That what John's getting at in loving the world, it's not just, hey, don't do unchristian things, but it's, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's a misordering of desires. And, and one last observation, at the end, John in verse 17 says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think John is kind of hearkening back to one of my favorite uh, uh, Bible, uh, books in the Bible, Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, what it mentions is the desires of the eyes of what you see is unending. It just never ends. And John's trying to get at, look, you, as a Christian, what you're realizing is, is you're not just living the life that you live as you should be, but it's with the truth that I'm part of a different kingdom, right? The whole part of John saying not to love the world is you're not made for this world. You're made for the kingdom of God, which Jesus brings. And it's a simple truth, but a reminder that often we forget the things that we have, the things that we desire, the things that we're prideful for, they are so not tangible. <laughs> they come and go. Um, even your net worth, even your real estate, whatever it is. And, and you know this when you look back just five, 10 years, what, what brought you contentment last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and even if you go back all the way to your childhood, they're childish things and you look back and you laugh, but you realize whatever you're loving now or desiring now that's broken up through sin, you're going to laugh at it again in, in 10, 20 years. John's getting at is there's an eternal contentment that you can find, which is in God, and it never ends. And I know that sounds simple, but oftentimes we treat the, the possessions or the world around us as eternal, and often God is not. And I think what John is kind of nudging us to do is just to flip that mentality so that's kind of the first half of what i want to get into but the second half 
John starts talking about the Antichrist or Antichrist and, and what is that? What should we be afraid of? So let's get into it. Verse 18, again, this is the ESV of 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is a promise that he made to us, eternal life. So what is John talking about? Who is the Antichrist? Is it the next president? Is it President Donald Trump? Was it, you know, ex-president Barack Obama? Is it President Joe Biden? I've heard so many you know, posts on who the Antichrist is. And let me break down practically what that word means. Oftentimes when you hear the word the Antichrist, you often think of the the Antichrist in Revelation, that the great deceiver who comes and bleeds his people astray, God's people and Jesus' church, uh, astray after the end times. And, you know, there's a lot of theories on that, but I, I don't think that's what John's getting at here. He references him or her, uh, that Antichrist is coming, but he says, so now many Antichrists have come. And he also talks about this being the last hour. So does this mean that John was wrong because, you know, it's been 2,000 years and I don't think uh, Armageddon hasn't happened? What is John getting at? So let me break it down in a couple of ways. When John mentions it's the last hour, I don't think what John is saying that it's a temporal description of the time, but more of a kingdom description of reality. What I mean by that is this, when Jesus entered and became human, right? And John writes about it, the incarnation, the word became flesh. And if you've been in our sermon series, that's something that we've been pressing, that Jesus became human, he became man, he became flesh. The instance that happened, the kingdom of God also arrived partially with Jesus onto earth. And it still survives through the spirit and through the church. Now, with that kingdom coming, it basically began the clock that the the kingdom of this world or of Satan or however you want to put it, the, the principalities of this world realized our time is running out. So what happens is they're speeding up their own type of warfare on us. And whatever it looks like, I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's just possessions or exorcisms, but I think it's much more subtle because they know that their time is running out, that Jesus has come. So that's what John's referencing to. When he's saying the last hour, it means, hey, the kingdom of God has come, and when Jesus finally comes back, the kingdom of God will be here for good. So that whole other kingdom, they're running on, you know, they're running on just time that's going to run out. So that's what John's getting at. And when he says antichrist, uh, the Greek literally means uh, someone that is uh, in opposition of Jesus. 
it, it basically is referring to anyone that is in an in, in anti-position, right? Anti the Greek, it, it hasn't changed much in this English translation. Um, but it's just basically referring to someone that tries to act like a Messiah or Savior, but is actually turning you away from the true Messiah and Savior, which is Jesus. Now, again, during this time, as you mentioned, the whole backdrop is we have these quote-unquote secessionists or basically heretics that have entered the church. That are We don't know exactly what they're saying, but they're spreading lies about Jesus. And those people are kind of impartially telling them truths about who Jesus is, but in the whole picture, they're turning people away from the truth of who Jesus is. So in today's time, for us, True North, in November 21st of 2022, uh, or sorry, November 22nd, as you will hear this, uh, what does that mean for us? Uh, you know, I thought about this a little bit. There there are a lot of heresies and heretics probably still within the church. I, I hope and I pray that Pastor Jay and myself aren't of that kind. But what are the antichrists of today? What what are the, you know, even the secessionists that, that John was so worried about? What, what does that same kind of threat look like for the church in America, at least? And I thought about it a lot. And I think the antichrists of the time, uh, they're very political. And, and I want to be careful here because I know people's politics are, you know, at, at this time, it can be very volatile. It can be very tribal. But when I think about our culture and our and our cultural moment and just even the cultural moment within the church, so much of the infighting, so much of the discussion, it's all based around political tribal parties. Oftentimes, even within the church, people are more concerned with your voting record and your political stances than being a brother or sister in Christ. And I think if John were to come today and write a letter, I don't think he would change much because he would say, look, there are still antichrists within your rank. They just look a little bit different. Um, they look like Tucker Carlson or they look like the New York Times you know, editorial staff that people, a lot of progressives might read, The Atlantic. It might look like Joe Biden, whatever it may be. And, and this is, I want to be clear. I don't mean those people individually are from Satan and, and demonically attacking the church. What I mean by that is oftentimes within the church, to find truth or to find correction or to find even, as we say at True North, the true north for your life, you and we use political pundits more than Jesus or the scriptures. And I really think John would say, look, the antichrists of our time are more political in nature. And, and I want to be clear, it's on both sides. I know at True North in the Bay Area, the majority of of how most people most people lean politically is on the left, but both on the left and the right, there are antichrists in the church that are telling you, "Hey, worry more about party lines and and party issues than Scripture and Jesus and the unity that the blood of Christ gives you." And I, I guess to get a little deeper too. Um, what does that look like and how should we be wary? Uh, on the left, for those who are, you know, consider yourself progressive or liberal, um, I often think, and, and some commentators have put it this way, progressives of, even progressive Christians at the time, they want the kingdom without the king. They basically want the ethic and, you know, the ethical and social life that Jesus offers, but without any mention of Jesus. 
to make this even more clear, there's a Christian commentator by the name of Richard Rohr, and he wrote this really, really small little tidbit about politics, and I, I think he wrote it like decades ago, but it still rings so true today. This is what he writes about liberals. Uh, on liberals, liberals seem unable to call their own consumer lifestyles into question. They cannot see their complicity in the system and thus can't radically crit uh, critique it. In my experience as a pastor, liberalism creates suspicious people more than loving people. They begin by asking, who has the power here, instead of, how can I serve here? Liberals seem incapable of being part of a tainted anything, food, institutions, histories, explanations, groups, even churches, and most especially, any authority structures of any kind. American liberalism or progressivism, in my opinion, has no practical goal beyond maintaining personal and social freedom. I choose, therefore I am, might be its operational belief system. I think those are very valid points for, and, and you know, in, in a very left-leaning area, I know that might sting for a lot of people who consider themselves a Democrat or liberal, but this is the thing, to be a Christian is to call anything that gives you guidance into question. I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and you can be a Democrat or Republican, but what John is getting at is, is you have to allow Jesus to be who he says he is, and then figure out what your political leanings are. Also, though, on the right, for conservatives, Richard Rohr writes this. If liberals refuse to be part of the dirt of history, conservatives refuse to even see the dirt, at least in their own group. Conservatism, conservatism's basic sin is a lack of courage, but also lack of exposure education. It usually does not know about the dark side, the other side, the view from the bottom, or even from the top. It confuses loyalty to systems with loyalty to God. Conservatives in general are so enamored with presidents and popes and precedents that there is never any room for prophecy or honest self-criticism. Look, uh, I don't want to add any more commentary to that because I think Richard does a really good job of, of spelling it out. But I think the antichrists of our time are political. And they're telling us, hey, if you follow this party, these ideals, these things, this truth, then you're going to find contentment or you're going to find justice or whatever it may look like. And there's sprinkles of truth in all of that. Uh, but I hope as a church, one thing John finishes is, uh, he writes it kind of at the ending of this chapter, he writes this, I write these things, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Jesus, from him, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I think that's such a good exhortation for our cultural moment. Um, you know, the presidential election will happen in two years. As a pastor, I'm not really looking forward to that, but it's a reality of living and, and, and a benefit and a privilege of living in America. But as it does, and, and you know, even in this political climate, wherever you lean, however strongly you lean, uh, and I hope I've been fair on, on both sides, but I would invite you into this. Abide in Jesus more than anything than a human teacher or a human institution teaches you. Uh, even if it feels like you're betraying your party or your political pundit or whatever it may be, abide in Jesus and wrestle with things. And, and I would even invite you uh, into this invitation. Uh, at True North, there, there are a lot of people from varying different political spectrums, uh, obviously a lot leaning left. Um, but I think as a church, the beauty of it is you're bringing people from different ethnicities, 
different political beliefs, from different points of life, and you'll call to, hey, worship God together and love one another as you love yourself. Um, what better place is there uh, than to practice this? So uh, I hope you can abide in him in whatever the way that looks like. Uh, hopefully even listening to this and reading First John together is helpful in that. So with that, I hope that was helpful. Um, if you have any other questions on the text, let me know. You can send me a DM. But other than that, hope that was helpful. Have a good Thanksgiving, and I hope to see you next week.